in the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 5 is our scripture reading and we will read from verse 25 down to the end of the chapter and that will correspond with page 979 in our Bibles at the back 979 Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. All right, well, if you're a guest with us, good morning, welcome. We're making our way through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in the New Testament. We've, we're near the end. We've got about three weeks left in this letter, and we've come up to chapter 5, verses 25 through 33 this morning. And uh, Paul's a true gentleman, so he gave the ladies first, and uh, he talked to wives last week, and this week, husbands, it's our turn, and Paul's going to spend some time addressing us as well. You know, in our cultural context today, You're well aware of the fact that marriage is being redefined, but did you also realize that it's being devalued? And perhaps it's because of the devaluing of marriage that we have the redefining of marriage. But in terms of devaluing marriage, there's been a dramatic cultural shift. At one time, there was a strong belief, and those of you who are older in this room remember that time perhaps, where there was a strong belief in the desirability and goodness of marriage, that it was a universal desire, that it was something that all people should desire. But that's no longer true. In fact, a recent report by the University of Virginia's National Marriage Project concluded the following, quote, less than a third of high school senior girls and only slightly more than a third of the boys seem to believe that marriage is more beneficial to individuals than the alternative. That's 33%. It's a pretty low number. We're living in different days. But this attitude flies very much in the face of what other research indicates about the desirability of marriage and its goodness for us. In fact, consistent research down through the last 25, 30, 40, 50 years has shown that people who are married consistently show much higher degrees of satisfaction with their lives than those who are single, divorced, or living with a partner. The great preponderance of research in the last several decades additionally reveals that most of people who are happy, who, who, 
rather reveals that most people who are happy in their marriages and most of those who are not, but who choose not to get divorced, will eventually become happy. So then where does this pessimism come from? Where's this idea that marriage is no longer desirable or something that should be pursued in the face of research that indicates just the opposite? Why is this so out of touch with reality? Well, paradoxically, I think it's possible that the pessimism comes from sort of a new kind of unrealistic idealism that people have about marriage that's born out of a significant cultural shift in our understanding of the purpose of marriage. What do I mean by that? I mean that the nature of this cultural shift that we, could be, that we, that we are experiencing can be described as a shift from seeing the purpose of marriage as existing for the other, namely God, the spouse, society, to the marriage existing for the self, me and me alone. Marriage that used to be about us is now about me. And ironically, it's this newer view of marriage that puts ourselves at the center that actually puts the crushing burden of expectation on the marriage and on spouses in a way that the more traditional understandings of marriage never did. Both men and women largely today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but rather as a way of pursuing personal life goals. They're all looking for marriage partners who are going to fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. And that creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to deep pessimism because nobody can be your savior like that. Nobody is able to, of giving you everything you need. And that's ironic, isn't it? The older views of marriage are considered to be so oppressive and so traditional. But the newer view, and the newer view of the me marriage is so liberating. But it's the newer view that has led to marriage steep decline. So to live within the newer view of this marriage requires two completely... Here's what it requires. If, you're gonna, if we're going to buy into society's understanding of, of marriage, here's what we have to do. We have to find two completely well-adjusted, happy little individuals with very little emotional neediness or any character flaws that, that especially need any, any, any amount of work whatsoever. The only problem is those people don't exist. There is no one left to marry. So a marriage that's based not on self-denial but on self-fulfillment will require a low or no-maintenance partner who meets your needs while making almost no claims on you. And friends, that doesn't exist. Simply put, today's people are asking far too much in a marriage partner. They're basically asking them to be sinless. So in our society, we are too pessimistic, pessimistic about the possibilities of monogamy because we're too idealistic about what we want in a marriage partner. And this all comes because we have a flawed understanding of the purpose of marriage itself. Now, whereas traditional societies perhaps saw marriage as a means of family security and status and modern societies might see marriage as a means of personal fulfillment, the biblical approach is neither of those. The biblical approach to marriage is gospel reenactment. The biblical approach to marriage is about displaying in the husband and wife relationship the relationship between Christ and the church, which is the relationship at the center of the universe. 
So unless we are approaching marriage with the understanding that it's meant to display something and reflect something and reveal something, we get started on the wrong foot and everything goes downhill from there. Last week, we saw that the wife's role in displaying this gospel reenactment in marriage is by taking the role of the church in its submission to Christ. And this week, we'll look at the husband's role as a sacrificial, loving head patterned after Christ's sacrifice for the church. Now, just think about that. Paul summarizes the marriage roles in verse 33. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife, each husband that is, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this love and respect idea. So we learn a few things about that just from the very beginning of of the introduction of these categories of love and respect. Think about it. The commands that Paul gives both to wives and to husbands are directed to our respective weaknesses. These are things we don't do by sinful nature. Like we will see next week, children are told to obey their parents and bond servants are told to obey their masters. That doesn't come naturally. And neither does respect for the wife or love for the husband. So we're called to things like love, husbands, and respect, wives, because these things are not natural for us. Women typically do better with love. Men typically do better with respect. C.S. Lewis once observed that women often think of love as taking trouble from others. While men typically think of love as not giving trouble to others. Right? Right, brothers? Right, sisters? We, t- we typically think of love in different ways. And so, husbands, Paul is calling us to actually take trouble for our wives, which is not natural for us, to sacrifice for them. And wives, you must not give trouble to your husbands by respecting and honoring them. And this is because husbands run on respect and wives run on love. And Paul understands that. The commands are not only directed to our weaknesses, but they also inform us about our needs. Husbands are told to love their wives because wives need love. Wives are told to respect their husbands because husbands need respect. Remembering this keeps us from giving what we would like to be getting. Wives, if you want love, give respect. Husbands, you want respect, give love. And this is the way we change each other. We don't change each other by demanding what we want. We change each other by giving them what they need. Husbands, our sacrificial love will beautify our wives and make them inclined to respect and honor and love us. And wives, Your respect can break down a man's disobedient spirit. Read 1 Peter 3. Winning them without a word by their conduct. So just with that foundation laid as to why Paul assigns the role of love to the husband and respect to the wives, with that foundation laid, let's turn to Ephesians 5, 25 to 33 and see three ways which a husband is to pattern his love after the love of Christ. The first one's found in verse 25. Let's read that verse again. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what's the first way husbands are to love our wives? Here it is. Number one, husbands, our love for our wives must be sacrificial. 
Our love for our wives must be sacrificial. Now notice Paul's, what Paul says here. He says, husbands, love your wives and do it in this way, as Christ loved the church. So there's our pattern. The pattern is Jesus and his love for his people. Now how did Jesus love his people? He gave himself up for them. And so giving ourselves up is the pattern and measure of our, to be the pattern and measure of our love for our wives. Let me ask you this question. How much did Jesus sacrifice for the well-being of his flock, of his bride, of his church? I mean, that sacrifice is deep and profound. The sacrifice began in the incarnation when Christ humbled himself, left the, the glories of heaven, and became a human being. And he took on the form of a servant. And he was born in a no-name stable, raised by no-name parents in a no-name town with a no-name occupation, before entering ministry with a bunch of no-name guys, before being found guilty of disturbing the peace and was whipped, beaten, scourged, crucified, hands and feet, nailed to the cross, spear in his side, crown of thorns on his head, suffering for three hours under horrendous physical and spiritual anguish. Why? Because he loves his bride. That's why. And he wanted to be with her forever. That's you, church. That's you. Jesus was willing to give up his entire life, everything that he had known for eternity, and become something that he was not, namely a man. And not just any man, not a, not a privileged man, not a king, not, a, not, a, not some sort of famous person, but rather, literally, a nobody. And he surrendered all of his rights, all of his privileges, and humbled himself to take the form of a servant all the way to the cross for you, because he loves you and he'd rather die than be without you. And husbands, he's our example. He desires his level of devotion, service, and sacrifice to his church to be mirrored in the way that you love your wife. So let me ask you some probing questions that I'd ask myself as a almost 12-year husband at this point. Let me ask you some questions, guys. Husbands, could you love could your love for your wife be categorized as sacrificial? Would your wife say that the way that you love her is a sacrificial love? What have you given up for her good? How have you sacrificed comfort for her benefit? How have you adjusted your schedule to serve her? In what ways have you died to yourself that she might live? What examples could she give of the sacrificial ways you care for her? How have you crucified your flesh to stay faithful to her? Probing questions, sobering questions, convicting questions, but necessary questions so that we can understand really if our love is a sacrificial love. Let me just give you a few examples of what a sacrificial love might look like. I'm just going to give you two because we could talk more, but these are the ones that God has been teaching me about a lot lately. First of all, guys, we have to be pursuant of our wives. 
We need to fight for our marriage and our relationship. Coasting and passivity is the death of a marriage. It's the death of a marriage. It introduces cancer into the relationship. Guys, we have to pursue our wives. This is, this is one way in which we sacrifice for them. We lay our lives down because it's, it stops being about our agenda and starts being our agenda being for them. In other words, they take up a major part of our, of our agenda and our thoughts and our plans and our desires. How does Jesus pursue you? How does Jesus sacrifice to you for you? I would argue that in one sense, while the sacrifice of Christ is finished in a more ongoing way, the sacrifice of Christ is never finished for you. He's always going to humbly serve you and love you. He's loving you right now at the right hand of the Father as he intercedes on your behalf. His prayers are consumed with you and us and his people. So he is always thinking for what we need. And he's posturing himself to meet those needs. He's eager to listen to us and hear from us and enter into relationship with us. Does he not pursue us? Absolutely. And we must, brothers, pursue our wives as well. We got to pursue them like we're dating them. Remember those days? Remember those dating days, guys? I do. Long conversations. Seeking to accommodate her. Thought like crazy for ways to bless her. So that she'd give you a little of her attention. Said no to so many other things so that we could spend time with her. But all too often after we're married, the opposite occurs. Instead of long conversations, there's no conversation or very short ones. We hardly ever talk. Instead of seeking to accommodate her, we're trying to find ways for her to accommodate us. And we take her for granted. Instead of thinking like crazy for ways to bless her, we can go whole days without even thinking about her. Instead of saying no to other things, we say yes to everything and compromise our time with our wives, left and right, surrendering our relationship to work and hobbies and Netflix and sports. You might say, but Mark, you don't understand, man. She's difficult to pursue now. You know, it's, it's different now that we're married. Now that we're, when, we were, when we weren't married, pursuit was, was sort of easy, but now it's hard to pursue. Well, okay. Well, let me give you a homework assignment for this afternoon, all right? Would you go home and would you read the book of Hosea? All right? And the book of Hosea, and and look at Hosea's call to love and pursue Gomer. And and, and all of a sudden, that wife of yours, whom has sacrificed so much of her dreams and her desires to follow you, will start to look pretty appealing. Because guess what? Jesus is Hosea and we're Gomer. And he loves us with a relentless, passionate, pursuing love that never gives up on us. So, guys, we got to sacrifice if we're going to love our wives the way Christ loves the church. And one of the ways we do that is that we pursue them. But also a second way is that we are present to them and with them. Look, you can't have a good marriage if you, just, if you don't show up, if you're not there. Now, there are two aspects of being present, right? There's physical presence, which is important. We need to be there with our wives. 65 hours of a work week and being gone several nights out of the week is not going to cut it. Our marriage will be significantly affected. 
And the second part of being present is not just the physical presence piece, but guys, you know what I'm talking about because I struggle with it. It's the mental and emotional presence, right? I mean, this is big time Holy Spirit working on Mark in this area of his life right now. Big time. It's not just enough to be physically present. Got to be emotionally and mentally present. See, Jesus is that way to you. He's a sympathetic high priest who enters into your weaknesses. He doesn't just, he's not just your Lord out there and your Savior out there. He's your Lord here and now in your mess with you. And we have to be that way with our, with our wives, husbands. Just because you're in the room doesn't mean you're in the room. We have to put down our iPhones and our remote controls and our home projects and make eye contact and engage our wives and listen and serve them. I'm preaching to me. We don't come home from work to escape. We come home to serve. We leave our full-time job and come home to a part-time job. So we have to be pursuant. We have to be present. And those are two ways that we will... um, we will, we will serve our wives and sacrifice for them. I'll tell you, if we just take those two things and we'll commit those things to prayer, guys, and we'll work on that, we'll work on being better pursuers and more present emotionally, mentally there with our wives, get ready for things to heat up in the bedroom. Because I'm talking about, and there's a, there's a healthy degree of sexuality, it's so important to marriage. That one flesh relationship can't exist without it. But you say, if you're asking, it's like, man, my wife's not as romantically desirous of me anymore. Well, are you pursuing her and are you present to her? Because as Leonce Crump, another pastor, once said, that if if you're not pursuing and you're not present, you're not playing. And we have to be pursuant and we have to be present. And that's going to require us to be humble to be prideless, to be prayerful, to be relying upon the Lord. But those sacrifices will be a way that we can manifest our love for our wives in a way that's commensurate with Jesus' love for us. Number two, husbands, not, you know, when our love must not only be sacrificial, but our love for our wives should be sanctifying, should be sanctifying. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul, continuing his thought, says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus' love, his sacrifice, his giving up himself for us, was meant to affect a change in us, right? You see that in the text? It was meant to make us holy, to wash us, to cleanse our filth. So that, verse 27, that when we get to Jesus and we see him and the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, that we might be presented to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, his sacrifice was designed to be a sanctifying influence on us. It was meant to change us. His love for us was meant to affect us, change us. And so what we see here is that in the same way, our calling as husbands is to give our lives away that our wives might be made more Christ-like through our service to them. Now, let me hear me. Let me say this. 
It's important to note this. Our sacrifice for our wives doesn't take away our wives' sins. And we don't sanctify them. Jesus does that through his work on the cross. But we must do all within our power to fuel our wives' love for, obedience to, and likeness of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. Our sacrifice for them has an end in mind. Namely, love for, obedience to, and likeness of Jesus. That's why we are sacrificing for them. So the question becomes, is my my wife more like Christ because she's married to me or in spite of me? Is my wife more like Christ because she's married to me or in spite of me? See, marriage is rigged up to be sanctifying. And this is why people ditch it. It's set up that way by design because marriage is God's idea, not man's idea. And when we try to redefine it or devalue it or get love around it, we're going to botch it and mess up our lives. And it's tragic. The devastation that comes into people's lives because they enter into marriage not knowing what it's about or how it's functioning. And we all carry, lest we think, you know, well, I knew what marriage was and I entered into it fully understanding the biblical. No, you didn't. (laughs) Nobody gets into marriage fully understanding what it's going to do to them and what it's all about and how it's going to all work. No, it's set up to be sanctifying by design. It's set up to assault the sinfulness of your heart. It's set up that way. It's rigged up that way. The institution is designed by God to expose you and in me, to expose us and to heal us, to heal the sinfulness of our hearts. See, we got to realize, brothers, that your spouse, your wife, it's not her problem. It's not, marriage is not so much about your spouse exposing the sinfulness of your heart as marriage exposing the sinfulness of your heart. See, marriage doesn't so much bring you into confrontation with your spouse as bring you into confrontation with yourself. That's what marriage does. It brings us into confrontation with us. Marriage shows you a very realistic but very unflattering picture of you. On an ongoing basis. (laughs) A very realistic and very unflattering picture of you. And then it takes you by the scruff of your neck and it forces you to pay attention to it. Or things just keep going down and down and down. But guess what, brothers and, sis- brothers and sisters, especially husbands in here? This is the road to our freedom and liberation. This is the road to our freedom and liberation. There's hope because you can finally start dealing with the real you. Now, what does this require of us as husbands and as wives? Because wives are this to, our, to their husbands as well. Your respect and your posture toward them as a submissive, loving wife, is also going to do this to your husband, just as the husband's sacrificial love for you will do this for you. And it requires both of us, wives and husbands, to approach our roles with a ministry mindset, doesn't it? 
a ministry mindset, not a consumer mindset. Now, what's the difference? Consumer mindset says, you for me. You give yourself to me. A ministry mindset says, me for you. I will give myself for you. Through my sacrificial service to my wife, I want to be a means of making my wife what she's destined to be 10,000 years from now in the presence of Jesus. Tim Keller says, what then is marriage for? It's for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creation that God will eventually make us. You see what marriage is for? Marriage is about preparing us to be with our true husband. Marriage is a microcosm that's an institution designed by God to prepare us to meet our future husband, Jesus. To quote Keller again, he says, within this Christian vision for marriage, here's what happens. And here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are take, we are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. And each spouse should then give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you'll stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Again, quoting Keller, he says, most people, when they're looking for a spouse, are looking for a finished statue when they should be looking for a wonderful block of marble. (laughs) Not so you can create the kind of person you want, but rather because you see what kind of person Jesus is making. When Michelangelo was asked how he carved his magnificent David, he replied, his reply is reputed to have been this. Quote, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. When looking for a marriage partner, each must be able to look inside the other and see what God is doing and be excited about being part of the process of liberating the emerging new you. It's a a helpful image, isn't it? A block of marble, not a finished statue, chiseling away the parts of each other that have no place in the new heavens and the new earth. And won't be there. And fanning into flames what will be there. And getting us ready for it. One final quote from Keller. He says, when two Christians fully understand this, stand before the minister all decked out on their wedding day and their wedding finery, they realize they're not just playing dress up. What they're saying is that someday they're going to be standing not before the minister, but before the Lord. And they will turn to each other without spot and blemish. And they hope to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servants. Over the years, you have lifted one another up to me. You've sacrificed for one another. You held one another up with prayer and with thanksgiving. You confronted each other. You rebuked each other. You hugged and you loved each other and continually pushed each other toward me. And now look at you. You're radiant. That's got to be our vision. That's bigger. That's so much bigger than anything that this world is going to say, here's what marriage is about. That is huge and that is glorious. And that's what we get to be for each other 
in all our imperfection and sin and messiness, that's what it's like. See, because what marriage is, is we are living in the house during the remodel. And it's messy and it's dusty and it's, it makes you want to cough and get sick sometimes. But there's a glorious house coming. And we got to stay in it, in the mess, in the difficulty, and realize that as that's happening, rooms are getting repainted. Carpets getting ripped up. Old smells are getting out of there. And new smells might be coming in. But all these glorious things will be happening, and we won't even know it because it doesn't happen like that. It happens over about 60 years. So husbands, our love for our wives should be sanctifying. And practically, that means several things. It means that we've got to be concerned about each other's spiritual well-being. We talk about how each other are doing spiritually. Check in with each other. It means we talk about the Word of God together. And we inquire how our wives are growing in their understanding of the Word. We take care to enable our wives to participate in Bible studies, classes, groups, worship that enable her to know the Lord and his word better. We check in, see how she's doing. We shepherd her. We care for her soul. Husbands, do you know your wife's dreams and fears and temptations and disappointments? We got to know each other at that level. And that's what it means to be a sanctifying influence. Number three, and finally, husbands, our love for our wives will be satisfying. You might be thinking, man, this sacrifice and sanctification business sounds like a lot of work. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if I want to sign up for that. You should want to sign up for that with all your heart and with all your soul, and I'm going to tell you why right now. Because, as we saw in point number one, our love must be sacrificial. Number two, our love should be sanctifying. But mark this down, husbands, your love for your wife, if you love her in a sacrificial, sanctifying way, will be incredibly satisfying. Now, how can I say that? Because that's what Paul says here. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. So you want to love yourself? You want to do things that benefit you? Love your wife. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, how can that be? How does it work that if I love her, I... Wait, I get benefit? How, how does that work? Because you're one flesh. That's why. You're one flesh. So what Paul says in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2. So notice what he's doing here. He's relating the way Christ sustains, nourishes, feeds, cares for his church. He says, when Christ sacrifices for his church, when Christ exercises a sanctifying influence on his church, when he pours himself out for his his church, what happens? His church becomes what he wants it to be, and that brings him great joy and pleasure because he's nourishing and caring for it. And he says, husbands, if you want to love yourself, love your wife. And this is all over the scriptures, right? Proverbs eleven twenty five: whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered, right? Say, I want to be, I want to be blessed. I want to be watered. Well, water, 
Proverbs eleven seventeen: a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Say, I want to I benefit myself. Be kind. Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So the deep satisfaction, friends, that marriage brings is found through sacrificial service, not around it. See, the path to happiness is not avoiding as much sacrifice as you possibly can. The path to happiness is embracing sacrifice for those you're called to embrace it for. And going, embracing it, not avoiding it. Because of the one flesh relationship that is marriage, you only discover happiness after each of you has put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own happiness. It's what John Piper calls the matrix of Christian hedonism in marriage. It's like, it's a weird, it's a weird way it works. It says, if I put my happiness, if I put the joy of my spouse ahead of my own joy, I will have more joy than if I didn't. Tell your flesh that because your flesh doesn't believe it and neither is mine. My remaining sin tells me exactly the opposite every single moment of every single day of my life. Get other people to sacrifice for you. Don't sacrifice for them. If you sacrifice for them, it's not going to benefit you. Some of you might be asking, if I put the happiness of my spouse ahead of my own, what do I get out of it? You want to know what the answer to that is? Happiness. <laughs> happiness. It's the joy that comes from giving joy. It's God's joy. Do you want your joy in your life? Your joy is pretty limited. It's ups and downs based on circumstances. Do you want your joy? Okay, do you want the world's joy? Or do you want God's joy? You want to experience the joy of God, the kind of joy that God himself has. Well, well, you know where the joy of God is found. It's written large in the life of Christ. He knew where the joy of God was found. Sacrifice it all for them. Jesus wanted to be happy. He wanted to be exalted. He wanted to be blessed. You know how he wanted to do it? incarnation, death, tomb, resurrection. That's how he did it. The cross before the crown. It's the joy of God. The joy of God is the joy of loving another person in a costly way. Whenever we taste that, that's the joy of God. You are tasting the joy of God. When you lay your life down for someone else, when you sacrifice on their behalf, And this is not talking about being a doormat because that's not loving. You confront lovingly. You rebuke lovingly. You don't just, you know, be a doormat. But you sacrifice. You lay your life down. And when you taste that joy, it's not temporary. It's not tainted. It's not polluted. It's the joy of God. And it's found in the path of sacrifice. All, other, all those other kinds of joys that you might experience by avoiding the path of sacrifice are not joys that are good for you. So all this means that if we try to put our own happiness ahead of obedience to God, we violate our own nature and become ultimately miserable. Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is teaching that if we seek happiness more than we seek him, we'll have neither. 
But if we seek to serve more than we serve happiness, we'll have both. So if you live for your private pleasure at the expense of your wife, you're living against yourself and you're destroying your highest joy. Don't do that, brothers. Husbands in this room, don't do that. Don't don't war against your highest joy by refusing to sacrifice. Work for your greatest joy by laying your life down in service to your wife in Christ. So the way this applies to marriage is that the path of lasting happiness is the path of service to one another. When we speak to one another, or sorry, when we seek to serve one another rather than to be happy, we'll find a new and deeper happiness. And this helps us diagnose, right, as we're, as we're living in our marriages and we're working them out, what to do when our marriage relationship starts to break down. When we're facing a problem in our marriage, the first thing we look for at the base of it is in some measure there is presence of self-centeredness and an unwillingness to serve. Right? That's at the root of of most marriage conflict. A refusal to serve and an unwillingness to be selfless. So life in God's world and in God's marriage means that we must be willing to give something up before it can be truly ours. Fulfillment is found on the far side of sustained, unselfish service, not on the near side. So nothing that you have not given away can ever really be yours. But once you give it away, you experience that you have it in abundance, namely your life. So maybe you're here and you're saying, okay, I get all that. I get all that. I get all that. I've heard it before. I know that Jesus calls me to take up my cross, deny myself, follow him. I get it. Okay, but this is going to be hard. You don't understand how difficult our marriage has been the last decade or two decades. You don't get it. You're young. I'm not going to listen to you. We got 12 years in. Shut up. You know, don't do that. I'm not talking. I don't care. God's word is talking to you. If I have any, if I've said anything that's not God's word, write me off. Just write it off. But if this is God's word, if he's calling you to the sacrificial, sanctifying, satisfying love, but you're still kind of hung up on that, I don't know if it'll be satisfying or not. I'm a little nervous. Maybe you're on, maybe you're a younger person and you're looking at marriage and you've seen how marriage is in your life and family and things have gone. You're like, I don't want that, man. I'm gonna be single. You're saying, I don't want to do that. Just realize something. Or you're saying, or you're in the marriage. You're like, yeah, I get it. I hear what he's saying, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that because I really don't believe deep down it's going to lead to my lasting satisfaction. Well, let me say this. You do that and prepare for your heart to get as hard as stone. If you refuse it, there's not only positive consequences, which means like you could be satisfied, but there's also negative consequences. It's going to make you a twofold son of hell. Why do I say that? Because of what C.S. Lewis writes, listen to in his own vivid way, he talks about if you withhold love, if you withhold sacrifice, if you withhold laying your life down because you're scared, it might not bring you joy, it might not bring you satisfaction. Hear C.S. Lewis right now. He says, quote, love anything, love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung out and possibly broken. That's a real thing. You might get your heart shattered. But if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies, 
and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements and lock it up in a safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Hear that word. Hear that word. There are many older men that I have interacted with who absolutely are disgusted at their wives, and they heard 15 sermons along their lives about loving their wives sacrificially, and they ignored them. And they got to old age if they didn't divorce, and they got to old age, and they're bitter, and they can hardly stand it. Why? That's what happened. They chose, rather than to pursue the path of lasting joy, they took the path of avoiding sacrifice, and their heart became irredeemable. It became hard and impenetrable. Don't do that to your heart. Don't do that to your soul. God knows what you have set before me, Psalm 1611, the path of life. This is the path of life. Who do you trust, yourself or God? Who do you trust? Do you trust God? Has his faithfulness to you shown itself to be all through your life, spot on all the way? Or has your wisdom led you where you thought it would go? No, you say, I know this, I know this, I know this. I need to beat it into my heart, beat it into my life. Me too. That's why I'm preaching this. We need to believe that the path of sacrifice is the path of joy. And as we lay our lives down, that's going to make a difference the next seven days in your marriage. Believe it. You're not losing anything when you give up yourself. You're not losing anything that's of worth. You're gaining the formation of Christ in you and the joy of Christ dwelling in you. All right, so this is it. If you're committed to your lasting satisfaction and eternal happiness, husbands, we're going to be committed to sacrificial, sanctifying, satisfying path of marriage. So how can we get there? What do we need to do? I don't have time to go into all of it right now. But I do want to leave you with four quick applications. I'm going to say like a word on each, and then we're going to pray and close. And it's all in the text. It's all in, it's all in, the, it's all in the, actually the four verses before this instruction to wives and husbands. Because remember, Paul didn't just write this in isolation from everything he's written up until then. This is, this is, this is critical. All right, first thing. If you're going to live this way, guys, don't you dare try to work, work harder right now, like thinking if I just do it harder, I'm going to do better. No, first of all, you need the enablement of the Holy Spirit. You need the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 18, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. If you're going to love your wife in a sacrificial way, you need to be filled with the Spirit. You know why? Because Jesus couldn't love his wife in a sacrificial way unless he was filled with the Spirit too. Think about that. Baptism, the dove comes on him before he starts his ministry. He needed, the Son of God needed the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life to do what God had called him to do. (laughs) You think we need any less? I mean, we're fickle, broken, sinful men. We need the Holy Spirit, which means we need to get on our faces and cry out, God, help me, fill me, enable me, empower me to live this life because I can't do it. I'm scared. Confess your fears to, the, to God. 
and say, Spirit, come help me. That's number one. Number two, encouragement of the church. You need the encouragement of the church. This is verse 19, chapter 5. Addressing one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Remember, in what context did Paul's instruction to the husbands and wives come? To the church in Ephesus. (laughs) You need the church. You need brothers and sisters around you who are committed to fighting for your marriage when you won't which is why you need to be in a community group and you need to open yourself up and your struggles and your difficulties and what's going on and let each other speak in and pray for each other. You need the encouragement of the church and you need to get real about your marriage issues. It's not going to be news to anybody. We're all struggling with the same stuff. So you need the encouragement of the church, the encouragement of the body, the prayers of the body, support of the body, the encouragement. You need all that. Number three, you need the empowerment of the gospel. You need the empowerment of the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 20. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be caught up with what God has done for us in Christ. The level of love that Christ has shown us all throughout our lives and will into eternity. We need to get to know just how awful we were, how glorious Jesus is, how much he humbled himself, how much he gave himself for us. We need to get acquainted and preach the gospel and knock it into our lives and batter our hearts with it over and over and over and over again. Read books about the gospel. Listen to sermons about the gospel. Beat your head with the gospel. And that will enable you because you'll realize I've got everything. I have everything I need. I'm giving up a little TV. Who cares? I've got it all, you know? And once you get that, see, the reason why we're scared of sacrifice is because we don't think we have very much. But if we're convinced we're inheriting the new heavens and the new earth and, every, and, and everything that we have is already given to us and we're going to reign, it's okay. I can deal with 30 minutes of Netflix a week. I won't get to finish that series or watch that game the way I wanted to or engage in that hobby or take that night away or whatever. And then finally, number four, you need the enthronement of Christ the enablement of the spirit, the encouragement of the church, the empowerment of the gospel, and the enthronement of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, what's got to be at the bottom of our lives, husbands and wives, Jesus is Lord of my life. He's Lord. He gets to call the shots. I don't get to call the shots. I mean, we don't just do that like with, Vin, when, with our brother Vince this morning, just you know, confessing that Christ is Lord. Like, he's going to do that, and we're going to keep doing it every single day of our lives. Oh, yeah, I'm not Lord anymore. Oh, yeah, I'm not Lord anymore. Oh, yeah, transfer ownership of my life again. God, help me get it through my thick skull that I don't own my life. I mean, I have, like, good grief. It's, like, ongoing in my life all the time. I still think I own my life. I still think it belongs to me. And God has to remind me again and again, Your life is to be marked by reverence for Christ. You need to submit to him and honor him. So God, may God help us, husbands, to be be these kind of sacrificial, sanctifying, satisfied lovers of our wives. And we will do so by the enablement of the spirit, by the encouragement of the church, by the empowerment of the gospel, and by the enthronement of Christ in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together for the opportunity to digest these words again to our hearts, to our minds and souls. We pray that they would be deeply, deeply woven into the very fabric of all of our being. And that as a result of this time together, we would walk away changed, that new new change would happen, that new life would come, that your spirit would move among us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Church, just a couple of announcements. Again, if you're a guest, thanks for being with us. And my glasses are all fogged up now because I wipe those off. I can't see anybody. Um, thanks for being with us again this morning. If we can uh, talk to you about anything, please uh, 
I'll be down front. You can talk to me or uh, we'd love to uh, get you acquainted with our church and let you know more about who we are. Um, so please, uh, you, there's also uh, cards in your front seat. If you have never filled one of those out, um, please, uh, please do so. You can drop it right here in one of those baskets or the basket over there by the, by the door. And a pastor would love to just send you an initial contact and talk to you and see if there's any way we can, we can help you. Um, we also have gospel community groups uh, as part of our church, and we'd love to get uh, you plugged into a network of relationships if you don't already know very many people um, in our church. Also, one last thing before I give us the benediction. Annual business meeting. Our, we're going to vote on our 2016 budget next, next week, uh, next Sunday night, 5 p.m. If, you have, if, you've, if you haven't looked at the budget yet, please look it over. Any questions that you have, we want to get as many of those answered ahead of time as we possibly can, so you can direct them to Eric Long. Um, or to me, um, our emails were on the initial uh, cover letter, I think, that was sent. At least Eric's was. If not, mine's mredfernhbcowens at hbncoowensboro.org. You can get me there. Um, so annual business meeting next Sunday night. We want all of our members to be there. It's an important time in our, in our, in our church uh, to vote on our budget for 2016. So may the grace of our God, may the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as you go in his name. Peace.